0: (laughs) Good morning, good to see you guys greeting each other, saying hi, giving hugs. Uh, Good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go to uh, Galatians chapter 4. And then uh, there's some seats like up this way over here. Instead of putting them too far back, you guys can, there's plenty of areas you can fit in. If you might might wanna move in a little bit, provide some room for people coming in, that'd be great. Um, Just wanna give you guys a a few quick things to know as we are um, just gearing up for for the fall. One is uh, many of you asked just kinda what we believe, the structure, kinda who we are. Um, uh, Member class is really the best first step for you uh, to kinda learn who we are, how we're structured, what we do, how we operate. Uh, That'll be next Sunday at 1 to 3.30. You can register that online. Some of you guys have asked how. You can just go online and register. If you have technological uh, handicaps or need help with that, go to the Information Center. They'll help you get uh, set up with that. Um, Also, the last uh, Wednesday of every month, we gather for corporate prayer and uh, the next one's coming up in three days, this Wednesday, from 7.30 to 8.30, and uh, we hope to see you all there again as we seek God's face. It was a blessing last month. I pray it continues to be a real lightning rod for us as a church as we ask God to do only the things that we, He can do, and as we see Him show up and answer prayer, we're seeing it, uh, and it's so encouraging and so uh, life-giving. And so uh, our groups are going to be joining us, and then even if you're not in a group, I always say you can join too, uh, so that we could uh, continue to grow as a, as a people, uh, dependent on God it's not natural uh, it's not in us which is why we have to fight hard for that so we're believing that God will continue to do that as we don't give up we just keep plowing and pressing into him and uh, asking God to do that um, and then finally just so that you all are aware there will be a, a fire drill with the kids so if you have a kid uh, and just don't panic if you hear like a bunch of kids leaving the building uh, that is okay uh, you never need to worry uh, that's just that's a drill that's not real if it's real I'll be running just follow me okay so I'll I'll sprint off the stage you just if I I ever run, you run too, okay? Otherwise, we're good, we're here, I can see the back, I see security, okay? We're, we're, we're safe, we're good. And in the, in, in off the heels of that, I want you guys to know too that um, some of you guys have noticed there's a number that appears in the bottom left-hand corner, that's uh, for security purposes if, if your child really needs you for any particular reason. Uh, it's right on the uh, part of your tag uh, where you checked your kid in, so if you don't have a tag, that's a problem, which means you probably didn't check in your kid properly, uh, so that's a no-no. So make sure that you keep the tag, Put your sons tag on them and uh, just look for that. I put mine on my Bible here so I can uh, always know what his is. Okay. All right. So good. Um, let's uh, get into uh, Galatians chapter four. I'm going to pray, ask God to just kind of hone in our minds, thoughts, and affections towards him that he would do the things that only he is able to do and confident to do and uh, that we would believe that and walk in that and receive the truth joyfully, eagerly. Uh, as it helps us as his people. God, thank you that, that Christ is risen. Thank you that you're not dead, that you're not in the grave, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling above all things. Thank you that nothing is outside of your will and your purposes and your sight. God, thank you that that Jesus is victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Thank you that we sit already knowing the end, that even our prayers are from a place of victory, that we are people who have been uh, chosen, adopted, saved, forgiven, reconciled, redeemed because of Christ, not because of any bit of what we bring to the table. And I pray that you continually remind us of this grace as we walk through the book of Galatians. Uh, God, thank you for the fruit that you are producing among us um, and in this world uh, through faithful men and women who are serving and abiding in you as you do the things that you've promised to do. Thank you that the church exists because of Christ, and that it will be sustained because of Christ, no matter how dark the days seem to get. God, thank you that we have you to cling to and to fix our eyes upon. Do it again this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. Now as we jump into Galatians chapter 4, here's what I want to do just to kind of help you out and kind of give a a little teaching moment. Um, uh, Galatians is basically uh, what we do here first is we kind of take books of the Bible and kind of plow through them line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because we want you to see all that God would want to say. We believe that we don't have to walk around with blind speculation. We've been given divine revelation in the scriptures. And so uh, we want to know what God has said. Now now here's what happens is um, we normally is we create sermon series so we say hey this is going to be broken up into 12 weeks we're going to preach Galatians for 12 weeks look at these nine verses these 12 verses these 10 verses and that's right that's good that's helpful that's healthy we should do that we are eager to walk in that Um, but the danger is if we're not careful is uh, we'll miss the forest from the trees um, so to speak and so here's what I mean Um, when Paul was penning this letter to the Galatians um, he was not thinking about church at Bergen in 2018 um, I promise, uh, I, because Church at Bergen wasn't thought. Now, Jesus was thinking about Church at Bergen in 2018. Uh, the total Trinitarian God had this in mind. It was his plan and his work, But but Paul was not thinking that. Paul was writing through this particular people in a particular time, and they would prob- normally they would, they would grab the letter they received from Paul, likely in a home that would be where their gathering is, and there were no Xerox machines, there were no copy machines, they weren't making copies for everyone. Oh, you here, you get a letter, you get a letter, you get a letter. We didn't all have Bibles in our lap. He would, someone would get up and they would read the letter in one sitting as to what Paul had laid before them. So it wasn't divided up into chunks right it wasn't divided into 12-week sermons now i'm not saying we should do this i'm just saying it's good to understand that as you get into this because otherwise you can miss the overarching theme and it helps you learn how to read your bible Okay, and so um, we've been seeing that Paul is writing to these churches in Galatia that he first started and preached the gospel. People were trusting in Christ. They were getting saved. They were getting forgiven of sin. They were given new life in his name. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and and he uh, enjoys them. He pastors them. Then he leaves. He moves on to start new churches, and he starts planting these other churches. And what happened is as he leaves, he catches wind of these false teachers who are going in saying, you should add this to Jesus or subtract this from Jesus. Jesus. And um, the danger was they were veering from the gospel. That's his whole point is that you are made right with God through grace alone, by faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Okay, he, he's emphatic about it. He will not shut up about it. He will not stop about it. He wants you to get that point. The only way you're made innocent, righteous, declared holy before God in his sight is through the work of Christ, the person work of And so um, look at just a couple high points. Don't turn there. I just want to show you this to remind us, right? Um, Out of the gate, six verses in chapter 1, verse 6, he says this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's what he wants to talk about. He doesn't even get six verses in before he's telling this group of people gathering, hey, I wanna talk about you drifting from this gospel and I'm, I'm honestly shocked that you'd wanna move on to anything else. I mean, how, how good is Jesus? How good is his grace? How, why would you wanna pervert this and distort this and desert this, right? Six verses in, he says that. Chapter 2, verse 16, just a couple verses later, he reminds us, we know that a person is not justified. That's the big theological term for to be declared right before God. We've discussed that. Um, He says, "Um, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. He goes, "Uh, just in case you forgot, um, I'm reminding you, the whole point of my letter is that you're justified by faith, not by works. Works, that the merits of Christ, the works of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, credited to you on your account, so that you get to boast in Jesus and not yourself. You get to enjoy Jesus and not yourself. Jesus doesn't give you idolatry; he gives you himself. He is the one you worship. He's the one you enjoy. He goes. I, I, just in case you missed it, then he gets five verses later in verse twenty-one of chapter two. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, he's going, okay, so hypothetically, if you could do what these false teachers are teaching, that God somehow switched the way salvation worked, even though from eternity past, it's always been centered around Christ and his work, if he somehow made it about you and what you could add to his work and what you could justify before God in your own doing, then there's no reason Christ came and why would he die? That makes no sense. And then he gets to chapter 3, verse 7, and he says, says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham is another way of just saying those who are the true people of God. Those who believe in the promise that God made to Abraham, right? That God through his line would make descendants, who would make descendants, who would have children, who have children. Who ultimately the seed of the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ, who would forgive people of their sins. He says the people of God are those who put their faith in in Christ by faith so listen we could grab a number of other texts just a quick overview shows you this it shows you this clear burden emphatic reminding of Paul that we're made right with God forgiven of sin declared innocent and righteous by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone now here's why I'm doing that here's why I'm saying that is because uh, some of you if you've been here since the first sermon are going man I, don't know, I feel like I come and every sermon kind of sounds the same it's because it is Okay, it's because Paul will not shut up about grace. Like, he wants it to be so ingrained in your head. You want to know why he does this? Because you and I are so prone to forget. You're going to walk out these doors and immediately, whether it's you enter into work life, home life, family life, just neighborhood life, just just world life, you're going to be tempted in your heart to immediately begin to justify yourself before men and through others based upon what you think validates you and not how Christ has validated you in full in the cross of Christ. So he's like, I am not going to let off of this thing. I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to keep reminding you of this grace and how salvation happens. Now, he's going to go around it and at and, and it from different angles, right? That's what we do. That's, the, that's 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 what's helpful in preaching. You take this same good message and you, and you attack it from different angles, and you you help learn it from different angles. That's why I love the Lord's Supper every week because we get to actually take the Lord's Supper, remembering different ways that this meal nourishes us in the gospel, right? Um, but here's the other reason why I did that is because what I don't want is us just the, the normal pattern of coming in and wow that was that was a, that was an encouraging sermon. Those were some good points. Like I want you to learn the to read the scriptures for yourself, right? I want you to learn how to look at the scriptures and look at books of the Bible as as people are preaching through them to go, oh, wow, now now I'm learning how to read it. I'm learning how to see it. I'm learning how to study it. I'm learning what it's about. So, hey, in four years, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, uh, what's that book Galatians about? You're like, oh, man, it's about how you are justified by faith alone, not by works. Man, Paul will not shut up. Do you want to read it? Let's walk through it together to where you have a framework for it. Good? Okay, not a sermon, just a thought. Let's get into verse 21 of chapter 4. And this week he's going to use an Old Testament illustration for this great exchange that takes place in the gospel of grace. He's going to, he's going to lay before you grace again in a different way, from a different angle. And he's going to use an Old Testament story. Um, now now here's the thing, if you have regulations or you were reading to like keep up last week, I know that you got to this part and you're like, Paul, what in the world? right? Uh, This 21 to 31, seems like Paul is schizophrenic, seems like Paul has kind of drifted off the trail. Uh, It's meaningful. I'm going to let the pieces fall and hopefully pick them up as best we can. Verse 21, here's what Paul says, "'Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman.'" Um, So Paul continues to be brilliant. As Paul is, as only Paul can be, apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing this inspired by the Holy Spirit. he's, He's brilliant in subversively undermining the futility in going after the law or living in such a way by being under the law that you believe you are going to be declared righteous by your works, by your merits, by your acts. So he basically just says here in this very subversive subversive way, reminds them that the law can't heal them. He goes, hey, even you who are under the law, that means those who are trying to obey the law as a way to be made righteous before God, he goes, even you know you don't keep it. Even you know the, the inner workings of your heart. Even you know that just yesterday you broke a command. So how silly is it that you still believe that you could somehow earn the righteousness of God other than through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. But then he basically contrasts these two situations. So, so he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. Okay, let's let's go back uh, historically just for a moment to when God calls Abraham. Uh, God calls Abraham when he's seventy-five, and he makes this promise, G- Genesis twelve: Hey, um, you're going to have descendants. Um, your wife Sarah is actually going to conceive. And have a son, and through his line, this Messiah, this Redeemer that everyone's been waiting on since Genesis 3, the promised seed who would crush the head of Satan even though his heel would be bruised, it's going to come through your line, right? He's 75. You're going to have descendants. His wife's barren. You're going to have descendants. Ridiculous promise. Anyone of you in this room, if you're 75, you're going, that's insane. That's insane. If God said, hey, uh, even though your wife is barren and you're 75, hey, this is when I'm going to flex my glory. Uh, This is when I'm going to do my work. See, imagine. See, see, in our culture, we think age 75 is when we're winding down, right? I mean, this is when kids are out of the house, kind of empty nester phase, Lord willing. We're growing with grandchildren. We've got these things kind of retirement has hit. We're, we're doing whatever we're doing, and God's going, no, this is when I'm getting started. I'm going to do the supernatural, not the natural. I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. I'm going to remind you because this whole letter has been about you can't, God can Right, It's a whole letter of Galatians. In the grace of the gospel, you can't, God can. You want to write that as like a tag for Galatians? That's what it is. You can't, God can. That's the whole scriptures, by the way. You can't, God can, God did Right in Christ. So here he's got this, and he's, he's got this message from God. He's, he's waiting. He's 75. But here's what's amazing. God doesn't immediately answer the promise that he gave to Abraham. In fact, Romans 4 says he wanted to wait until Abraham was as good as dead. So it's like, 75? That's impressive. I'm God. Let's let you live a little longer. Uh, Keep growing in age, man. I am going to do this thing so that everyone would go, no way. How awesome is God? How awesome is God? So Abraham gets to 85, still doesn't have kids. I mean, think about this, a decade Right? I mean, God still hasn't seemed to come through on his promise. At 75, he was promised, man, we'll have this child and descendants. And, and meanwhile, his wife, Sarah, who's like, um, hey, I'm the one giving birth. I'm getting a little impatient over here. Like, like, this thing isn't really coming through when I thought. So she devises her own plan. How many of us do that, right? Uh, God isn't coming through. God's not doing what he said he would do. God isn't operating or, or showing up in this realm, so I'll just take control. I'll do it my way, right? I'll take this detour. And so she has the brilliant idea... That was sarcastic of devising another plan, even though she knows the promise God made. says to Abram, hey, um, why don't you just marry our old, our our maid Hagar? Why don't you conceive with her? Um, Now, this actually was not abnormal in culture. Uh, Legally, he could do that. It wasn't an uncommon practice, but it definitely wasn't a wise practice. And it definitely was not what God intended. It's definitely not what God wanted. And so Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael. Right, so so Abraham and, and Hagar conceive Ishmael, okay, that then you've got Abraham who's about 99, and God comes to him. And, and what mercy is this? In his disobedience, he's still faithful to his own promise. He says, hey Abraham, uh, remember the promise that I made to you? That it's going to happen now. Hey, Sarah, remember the promise I made you? It's going to happen now. I love it. Despite you, despite your disobedience, despite your ignorance, despite you trying to take matters into your own hands, God is overruling, right, their bad decisions through the glory of his name to flex his own might and show, hey, when I make a promise, it's going to happen. Not because you're great, not because you're strong, not because you're good, but because I made a promise. Coming off of last week, right? That's why we trust God. We don't trust him because we're helping him uphold what he says, what he says he will do because he's God. So, so here we see that, that there's this amazing reality. Here it's going to happen, and God's going, it's going to be an absolute miracle. It's going to be supernatural, not natural like with Hagar, where you try to make it happen in your own ways. And it's going to be so crazy. I'm going to make his name Isaac, which means laughter. So people are going to go, no way, shut up. Like, this is insane. People are just going to laugh about it because it's so miraculous. It's so stupendous. It's so mysterious. It's so divine. It's so good. And so they have a son, and his name is Isaac. When I think Abraham's about 103. And they conceive Isaac, and then what happens? Ishmael gets jealous, starts kind of teasing Isaac at the ceremony and other things, and eventually they kick Ishmael and Hagar out of the house. That's basically the story. And here's what he's going to say in verse 23. This will hopefully catch us up to speed. But the son of the slave, that's Hagar, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, you should start to be able to see where Paul's going with this. Because if the whole text of Galatians has been, you can't, God can, what he's trying to do is remove from you any confidence in your flesh, right? He's trying to remove from you any bit of you that would say, no, I participated. I get to boast a little before the judgment. He's trying to strip from you any possibility, any inkling, any, any way that you would want to say that I have done this. Your confidence in the flesh, he's trying to eradicate So he says, the child born of the slave woman was born by the flesh, meaning you didn't really need God's help for that. Obviously, God is the author of all life. But he goes, I mean, you just try to do it your own way, right? Here's a young woman. She's barren. Hey, let's let's, let's, let's do this thing together. Yet with Isaac, with the promise, with Sarah, God had to show up. God had to do something. God had to flex his might. God had to show that nothing else could be done. Unless I intervene. That's the son of the promise. That's salvation. It's miraculous. God had to intervene. God had to show up. God had to do something. When you try to accomplish salvation in your own way, when you try to do it through other avenues and roads, when you try to approach the throne through other means, through religious activity, or through just licentious living, or just through believing that he doesn't exist, whatever that was, man, God had to intervene. God had to show up, which is why God sends. God incarnates. God forgives. God comes. So I love Advent that's approaching. We're reminded that it was always God's idea. Look at what he says in verse 24. All this, this whole story, all this that's happened with Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, Hagar, Sarah. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Okay, stop. <laughs> stop. This is where that little phrase actually matters. <laughs> Here's why that little phrase actually matters. Because... A common mistake people make is they will think that the Old Testament is just to be looked at allegorically and it's not really ever historically. Okay, so there's a reason that Paul stopped and said, hey, um, by the way, um, this story is to be interpreted allegorically. The truth is the Old Testament is historical and rarely allegorical. So, So this is the danger when we look at our Bibles, right? See, see, allegory will just say, "Well, it's just a story. It teaches us a moral lesson about God and about us." Okay, this is this is so common, right? David and Goliath, right? You got David and Goliath, man. You see that story. It's more allegory. It just kind of teaches you about something. So, hey, hey, um, God can help you slay your giants. So all the things that you hate, man, he'll bring them down. Just put them in the sling, believe, stir, sling, let go. Hit them in the forehead. Watch them fall. You're victorious in you. No. Uh, David and Goliath is about David being a type of Christ, a shadow that points us to, man, you were dead in your sin. You couldn't get out. You had no way of escaping. The giant of Satan's sin and death came before you. Christ stood in your place, and he... The defeated the giant, made him false, so you could walk in victorious living, right? It's always on Christ. It's not on you, not about what you do. So this is to be interpreted allegorical. Not every story, but the Bible will tell you when. Okay. Anyways, not another sermon, just another thought. So, so, so Paul's going, listen, this can be taken allegorically, and then he just tells you. That's why I love the Bible. It just tells you. When you ask a question, I don't know, what do you mean by that, Lord? Oh, let me tell you. What do you mean I'm unrighteous? Well, let me tell you. What do you mean I had no way out? Let me show you. What do you mean Christ is the hero? Let me say it again. Right? Love the Bible. It says, These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, some of you may read that text and not really think much of that, but the weight of what he said to a Jewish listener would have flipped their world upside down. Because here's what he just said. He just said to the present-day Jerusalem, the place of a stronghold of Jewish practice, that you're children of Hagar. You're enslaved. Now, listen, they're going, what? We're not... We're not children of Hagar. We're, we're children of Sarah. We're children of the promise. We're not children of, of Hagar. What are you talking about? We're enslaved. And what Paul's getting at is you don't even realize you're acting like the children of Hagar. You're acting like that lion who's enslaved to the law, trying to make salvation happen through your own works and your own merits and your own obedience. That's not, that's not how this thing happens. So it's an indictment on them. It is is profound in what he says. Man, Hagar is the mother of the Gentiles who they despise and were trying to convert to Judaism. So man, Paul's saying this. This is strong language. This is flipping their whole world upside down. And and so here he says, see this picture, it shows something figurative. They're the ways of God. The ways of God and salvation are supernatural, not natural. They're not like Hagar, where you're just going to continually try that cul-de-sac of activity, believing you can get yourself out of enslavement, only to be kicked out of God's house time and time again. What you need is to rely on his promise, which came from Isaac through Christ, where you see in Sarah, just like he supernaturally gifted a child into the womb of Sarah, he will supernaturally gift the Holy Spirit into the heart, mind, and soul of the Christian who would trust in Christ and his glory. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Like, like he, here's what he's showing you here is This, this whole thing, there's this 100-year-old man and nine year old woman, and God makes a promise, and God fulfills it. It's amazing. That's so nuts. That's so divine. That's so supernatural. Then you got this other picture of Hagar, who, who just kind of like, well, I don't know, I'm going to kind of try to make my own path, and I'm going try to try to do it on my own, and I don't care about a promise. I'm going to make this thing happen. I'm going to work this thing out. I'm tired of waiting on God. It ends in heartbreak and folly every time, doesn't it? with us and with Hagar and Ishmael. So he says, don't you understand, this is more than a story about two boys. It's about salvation. It's about grace. Grace in the gospel. I haven't drifted from the script. I'm using an illustration that you're well aware of to remind you of the seriousness and beauty of grace. So Paul's showing how this shows salvation. He says, Hagar and, and all that, that follow that line that aren't of the promise, the promise that God made in Christ, you're just under the law still. You're trying to earn heaven somehow, trying to do this and gain favor when really you're enslaved. See, this is what's awesome. The children of the promise, those of us who believe in God's work through Jesus Christ on our behalf, it's all about him. I mean, was it really about how awesome Abraham was that he could somehow figure this thing out? No, he he unbelieved the whole way. Well, was it actually about how awesome Sarah was at 90 that she could just somehow make a life be created? No, it was how awesome God was. It was all about God. It was all about how good he was. No, it's about God saying, watch me do the impossible that you could never do by your strength, by your works, by your abilities. I'm going to create a way in Christ, and my spirit will come into you just like that child came into the womb of Sarah. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Just rips this off of Isaiah 54. It's with the nation of Israel. They feel like their dreams are dashed. All these other armies are rising up. These great nations are rising up. They feel like they're not what God promised they would be. They thought they'd be this great nation. It doesn't look like it'll come to pass. And Isaiah reminds them, when you're weak, when you're barren, he's really awesome. When you think there's no way God makes a way, when you realize your inability and your futility in your own, that's when God's glory shows up. That's when his salvation tastes sweet. That's when God decides to show you his power and his might. Do you see what Paul is doing? <laughs> He's relentless in removing from you and I any confidence in your flesh. No, it's when you're totally weak that he's strong. It's when you realize, I'm gonna, I have the ceilings right here. I can't get past it. I, mean, I can't find satisfaction. I can't find joy to the full. I can't find forgiveness of sin. I can't find any way to appease a deity if he exists in unapproachable light, infinite perfections. I have no way of making myself right across this chasm. And he goes, that's right. That's right, it's when you're barren, it's when you're weak, it's when you finally lay on the floor with hardly a breath left in your lungs that you admit Christ needs to come by and save me. He goes, that's when it happens. He goes, that's grace. It's not any bit about you boasting. or you thinking you can achieve something in of your own works and merits? Man, when you're barren, he brings forth life. When you have no ability to reconcile yourself to God the Father, he reconciles you to the Father. When you have no ability to have righteousness in of yourself, he imputes righteousness from Christ. When you have no ability and you find no way to pay a debt, he pays a debt for you. When you were a stranger, he adopts you in the family as an adopted son and daughter. When you're an enemy, he makes you a friend. It's a good news in the gospel. Verse 28 Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul's riding the coattails of last week with this mind blowing exchange that happens when you go from a stranger of God, thinking enslavement is good and free and life-giving, to being adopted as his son and daughter and no longer looking at the judicial gavel being brought down, which declares you holy and spotless and blameless, but also getting to call him dad. You're a child now of this promise, like Isaac. It's about this promise and all about you being children. Are you aware of this? This amazing exchange of grace where Jesus takes our unrighteous life and gives us his righteous life, where God promises to move us from stranger to child. Here's the thing about this, because he's showing here that, that I mean, your flesh used to persecute you, right? That's what the law does. It just persecutes you. You're not going to find any healing there. Those of you in, in moments of, oh, man, I feel like I, I, I fell and I, whatever, you immediately revert to moralism, which doesn't heal you. It was never meant to. It's actually meant to inflame and exacerbate your problem to show you need Christ. So you lean to Christ to heal you, not your morality to, to heal you. And, and here's what he's showing. That that used to persecute you, and he says, it persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. In other words, until you're born of the Spirit, that thing is going to constantly pester you. You're going to constantly want to be broken free. And what I've found is you're only broken free. When you learn the exchange of I'm a child of a promise and not simply he's a just judge that declares me righteous. Here's what I mean. It is absolutely good, right, holy, beautiful to have an understanding of justification. You have to. You have to. And and if you've been covering lengths of time, we talk about it all the time, that, that God in the judicial court Right says, "I see your alienated, hostile mind doing evil deeds, and I am going to take the spotless, blameless, above reproach, holy life of Christ and credit it to you. That He will actually become as an enemy of God, not being an enemy of God, become as an enemy of God, so that we who are enemies of God will be made His friends." So you see that amazing reality: the just Judge, who's good and right. We deserve wrath. We deserve punishment. And he slams the gavel. But but here's the thing. Paul's going, you're not sons and daughters of Hagar anymore. You're sons and daughters of the promise. You're adopted. You're his. You're under the father's care, that whole boss employee to father son. That's the only way you're freed because here's why. Here's why. For me. I found although justification is so beautiful, if you don't have the understanding of God's adopting work of son and daughter, you will never be free to enjoy his love and be secure in his grace and live a life of obedience that is bursting forth from the security of a father heart of God that loves his children. That intimacy is already guaranteed. That you're already in the fold. See, Jesus doesn't just take you into the courtroom and acknowledge that you're free. That doesn't, that, that's not it. You're not done there, man. Then he says, hey, man, let's go. Let's head out into the world as my son, as my daughter, man. Like, like, it's not about performance that keeps you in this thing. It's about my love that secured you in this, that freed you and liberated you. And then I find there's a way to love God and be secure in him and move towards Christ. See, see he, here's why. Um, when you don't understand the father heart of God and the justification of God, you will consistently walk back to the law in your fear and insecurity. And that's what he's saying. Why would you walk back to the law in fear and insecurity? Because you fear the approval of God. Because you're insecure and does he really love me? Does he really have me? Does he really forgive me? Right? I mean, that, that's, that's the constant game. I mean, if, he isn't, if he's not a father who says, no, you're not loved by me based upon, predicated upon performance. You're loved by me because you're mine and I'm going to keep you regardless of you through my abilities and my care and my sovereignty and my works and my ways. You don't have any hope for security in your walk with Christ. You will consistently do works through a mentality of earning and insecurity, and I have to, I have to, not out of joy, not out of worship, but out of begrudging submission to a God you think is still your boss. I'm saying, man, Paul's trying to take both these things and show them as beautiful and show, no, no, in this new family of God, this is how you walk as free. Here's what's amazing, because um, we'll even avoid him if we don't understand that. Don't read me, don't read my heart. Even though he knows your heart, and he sees right through it, and he sees through your crossed arms. I mean, like, like, even though he knows every bit about you, when you realize he still accepts me, he still loves me, he st- I'm still his kid. That's just amazing. Um, here's why this is really important. Seeing justification, right? Man, I was a sinner. I was due wrath, eternal torment, separation from God and I see the justification of God declaring me righteous, that brings relief, right? It should bring relief. It should bring joy. But to see God as dad now changes everything. That's what Paul's saying. Know who your father is. Know your son and daughter not to slavery to the law, but liberate. He's writing off of chapter four. He's still in context. Don't you know who your father is? Because here's the truth. I don't want to hang out with the judge. Like, I don't want to kick soccer with the judge. I don't want the judge to know all my burdens and all my fears and all my anxieties. Like, like I'm not going to go camping with the judge. I'm not. I have no shame in saying that. (laughs) I have no intimacy in that way. Now, am I deeply thankful for him slamming the gavel and declaring me righteous? Absolutely. And amen. Right, I'm. I'm. What he does in the courtroom, I'm grateful for. But when he transitions me into son of a promise, a child, of God, man, that liberates me. Because you know who, who I want to go kick soccer with, Dad. You want to know who I want to talk with, Dad. You want to just share my burdens with and my cares and my concerns with, Dad. You want to know who I want, uh, whose approval I want. I want my dad's. You know who I want to just be able to to, be able to talk about life and understand his ways, understand what's, what's dangerous and what's not dangerous and how do I walk in, in freedom and how, how do I find you know, healing and hope? And man, I want my dad to tell me that. And that's who he is, man. This is Romans 8. This is whole, the whole image of Romans 8 in here, that he puts his spirit in you so that it, it cries, Abba, Father, to free you to walk in the spirit. The only way you're free to walk in the spirit is when you understand what your heart cries now. This is huge. So many of us solely live in justification Right, but not into the adoptive love of the father heart of God. Both are massively important. And you can't have one way without the other. But he's tethering something together here that is so beautiful. And this is what's amazing. On top of adoption as sons and daughters, he he doesn't adopt you as the black sheep of the family. You ever felt like that? I gotta hide that one. And brought him in, Mike Reese going outside, right? Gonna keep you in the in the old house above the garage. Stay there. You're not quite adding up to what I thought. You know, God's in the business of rescuing troubled kids. Man, He's in the business of, of rescuing kids that have behavioral issues. Because that's the only kind that he saves. He's in the business of going out and finding the weak and the frail and the imperfect. That's the kind of kids he adopts. He doesn't adopt the kids or, hey, hey, pick me, man. I'm awesome. Hey, man, you see my performance review yesterday? You should add me to that family. Add me to that home. Add me to that. No, no, no. And when he grabs you in and shuts the door, there is love. There is a feast. There is mercy. There is kindness. And that kid is just swallowed up in grace that he couldn't possibly ever dream of leaving that house. That's what he's trying to show you, man. This is the enslavement that you're in and the freedom that you're in and all the, all the amazing facets of God that he gives you as his kids. It's incredible. This is the invitation. Paul says, why would you want to walk in slavery when you can walk in sonship and daughtership of the king and inherit his kingdom? That's what he said last week, and he's continuing to say it this week. So what's our response? Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We respond in repentance. We respond in repentance. Cast out the slave woman and her son. That means cast out the ways you've consistently tried to live under that law. And try to be Hagar in her line, believing that your way would def- would define freedom for you, believing that your rights and merits and petitions, all of your idolatry, when those things were met in you, you'd somehow be free. Confess that. Repent of that. Cast that out. Just like Hagar and Ishmael were kicked out of the house, I mean, It's a kicking out of the old way, of the way you used to live. And believing in the promises of God, that you're not under the law, that that Holy Spirit's conviction that pushes you graciously towards the hope and love and mercy of Christ is a good thing. So now we repent of trying to earn our favor before God on our own. We repent of trying to be clean enough and rest in the forgiving, adopting love of our Father. See, here's why this is awesome. Here's why this repentance is awesome. Because as we walk into this room, now now maybe it's before we were Christians, maybe it's even as we are Christians. Um, this is actually what we really want. Like, we want a God who's big enough, a God who's sovereign enough. We want a God who's big enough to pray to, a God who's big enough to, to save us, a God who's big enough to die for, a God who's big enough to obey. We want a God who's big enough. So, man, this God is massive. And we come in here and we go, okay, I'm listening because I want to hear of a Jesus who will give me all my idols. So we want prominence, we want prestige, we want identity, we want power, we want all these things. And what happens is we come in and go, okay, let me hear about a Jesus who will give me all those things, and he gives you himself. He doesn't give you your idols like you want, he gives you himself, and now you repent of all the ways you worshiped, all these other things that were of such less value, that were trinkets and toys, that were not gods that could hold up under the weight of this world. How in the world is anything else gonna help you on your dark night of the soul? Like, we're all going to suffer. We're all going to have hard days. We're all going to have hard nights. We're all going to go through trials and temptations. Jesus promised this would happen. Just talking with a brother um, right at the 915, man, just going through difficulty, going remembering that Jesus promised us this would happen. With persecution from the world, people thinking we're nuts and saying we're crazy and bigots and this and that. Man, Jesus said that would happen. So, so what's going to help you in that moment of darkness when Jesus is here just to give you your idols? You're left naked climbing a mountain with a Speedo on Mount Everest. That's what you are with nothing but a rope. That's where you find yourself, and God in Christ comes, and he says, have Jesus Christ, my son. Jesus is not a means to an end. He's the means and the ends, so that in your darkest night, you have Jesus. That's why I repent of all these other things that I want, I repent of the prestige I want, the power I want, the fame I want, the identity I want, because I have it all as an adoptive son and daughter in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He secured me, He has me. See, this story really just drives our hearts to one central place the reality of this great exchange and the profound new identity it creates in us. That's what Paul just said in 10 verses. It's an amazing exchange that he takes our unrighteous life for his righteous life, that he saw us trying to make a way when there wasn't a way. And he reminds you of his promise. Hey, I promised I'd do this. I promised Christ would come, and he did. Be secure me as your father and justifier. Athanasius, early church father in the fourth century, Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 14th century, they both called this the great exchange. This amazing reality that happens in Christ where we were Enemies and became sons and daughters and friends. Gandhi said this. He said this famously and he said it wrongly. He said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, for example, him redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed. If there was anything like that that happened, supernaturally, my heart will not accept it. To Gandhi, Jesus' life and death was no different from Russell Crowe's death in the gladiator. It's inspiring, it's arousing, but at the end of the day, that's all it is. It doesn't have any mystery or power to it doesn't have any life to it. Nothing else really happened there. It was a good example. It's stimulating, and that's it. And Paul is going, no, 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 no. Paul's going, no. The very heart of what happened in Christ's life, death, and resurrection was miraculous and mysterious in this exchange, like Abraham and Sarah. It was divine. It was supernatural, man. God had to show up. His life, death, and resurrection is anything but just something cute to look at or examine. And there's power in that thing. There's an exchange that happens. In justification, you stand not accused before God but seen as his righteousness. In forgiveness, you stand before God in debt and he cancels your debt. In adoption, you stand before God as a stranger and you're made a son and daughter. In reconciliation, you stand before God as his enemy and you're made his friend. In redemption, you stand before God as a slave and you receive freedom. Man, the past may explain you but it no longer defines you at all. Man, all tribes, tongues, nations under Christ the head. Man, he's awesome. He is a supernatural. How in the world could this happen? He has to intervene. We couldn't intervene. That's the gospel of grace. It's the whole Bible. That's what Paul is trying to emphatically remind them of in this text. That he supersedes every other name. That his name is to be praised. That his name is to be worshipped. And his life is the life that's lived through you. Like this is the one that indwells you. The one who exchanged his life for yours. And it's mysterious, and it's supernatural, and it is powerful, and it is profound. And you could not do it on your own. That's why this is what I want us to understand. Christian maturity, you growing in the likeness of Christ, has nothing to do with your position in Christ. Because if you think growing in Christ changes your position before God in justification, you will spend your entire life trying to make God like you. And until you understand a justification, he turned to God, righteous, holy, which he still is, and Father, too. (laughs) That I also get that? That affects the entire way you live and Paul wants them to get it and I want us to get it because the Christian life is the process of becoming who you already are. Like you're already secure. You're already home. You're already with them. The gavel's already been slammed. So now you growing in sanctification through the power of the Spirit is the process of you just becoming who you already are in Christ. 2 Timothy, um, Paul ends. I'm ending. Paul ends. He he says this amazing thing to Timothy. A young pastor who pastored Ephesus, church in Ephesus. And uh, he writes this, this young pastor who, man, he's confronted with. People think he's, he's just too young to be a pastor. They think he's got weird doctrine, he's just getting all tied in knots, and and Paul's exhorting him, he's encouraging him, and, and he says in chapter two of the second letter he writes to him, he talks about fanning the gift of flame that's in you, but then he says this, he says above else, he goes, remember Jesus Christ, offspring of David, risen from the dead. Paul's going to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, the only way for security And identity is remembering life, death, resurrection. Remember who Christ. Remember, remember the Christ that lives within you, who became your life. You're hidden with Him. Remember Jesus Christ, offspring of David. Remember that His humanness, full divinity kept, added to it humanity, as Augustine said. Right? We we He comes and He adds humanity to Himself. Why? So He can identify with you. So when you weep burdens, man, he's weeping alongside you. You saw him weep in John 11. He, he's a high priest who can identify with your weakness, yet never sinned. He knows what temptation is like if he ever t- was tempted to sin. He never gave way to sin. And, and then don't forget, I love the other part, though. Not only is his humanness there, so he's a high priest that can identify. He's intimate. He's near. He's a, he's a throne you can approach in time of need. He's a father. He's also risen from the dead. Man this is authority this is his name supersedes all name this is every name in the universe has an identity under him And anyone who gets into his family gets clothed with his sonship and daughtership. They inherit what he has. We were co-heirs last week. You get to enjoy all that Christ is and has. Your identity is finally and fully wrapped up in that. So he's saying, remember Timothy. Paul says to the Galatians, Paul says to us, Jesus says to us, remember who you are. You are from what line? The promise in Isaac. Remember that God had intervened. It was supernatural. It was amazing. You should never grow weary of all awe that God lives through you it's his point see see the Christian life is probably less of us living our life for God and more God living his life through us mm-hmm. to ask him for help to believe that father there's so much in this text that is confusing and helpful and I pray that your spirit would just continue to help us understand who we are first in the person and work of Jesus by grace through faith in Christ alone and that God, you give us hearts of obedience to follow you and love you, seeing justification and seeing sanctification and redemption and reconciliation and all these beautiful facets. God, every part of your work in the gospel is necessary for us to understand and, and to walk in as free sons and daughters of the King. God, forgive us for trying, trying to earn what you've freely given us in the gospel. Forgive us from trying to act like children of Hagar. Forgive us for believing that prestige and power and fame and prominence can be found outside of Christ. Forgive us for approaching Jesus to have our idols and not have him. God, help us to repent and to cast that away, you say in verse 30, to cast out Hagar and her son that wrong belief in our hearts, it's believing a wrong gospel. How would you remind us of who resides within us and who is for us? You who did not spare your own son, will you not graciously give us everything? Greater or lesser, if you didn't spare your son, I mean, why in the world wouldn't you graciously give us all that you are in Christ? Father, pray for those that are beat up and broken, that they find healing in Jesus, that they'd be humble enough to acknowledge even in their sorrow and shame, that they belittle the cross of Christ in believing that they're too bad or outside of grace. And God, that those that are tempted to believe that all that they're doing and growing in their walks with Jesus in some way is contributing to the justification that took place, would you humble them? Would you humble us? God, make us a people that are meek followers of Jesus. Father, make us be a people of prayer that earnestly seek your face and ask you to do the things that only you can do. Father, thank you that this table, the broken body and shed blood reminds us of who dwells within us and reminds us of the justification and fatherhood of God that took place in this great exchange. But we enjoy that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.